0: Father, it is an unspeakable, indescribable privilege that you would speak to us. In a world full of a lot of sound bites, a lot of information, some of it really good, some of it just kind of confusing, some of it just blatantly wrong. We're just so grateful that you chose in your kindness and your wisdom to speak and then have your word recorded in this book. And so as we come to it, might we respond to it, hear it, hunger for it, absorb it, Long for it, listen to it, consider it, submit to it, God, not like any other word we'll ever hear, but what it really is, your living and active word. God, we ask for the Spirit to come and to translate this text and apply it into each and every one of our hearts and lives. It is such a, it is an encouraging text to give us the right kind of lens in which to see this world and all that you promised to do to mend it. God, what we need more than anything, though, As we pray every single week as a church, what we need, every single person's room, whether they've walked with Christ for, for seven decades, whether they're just considering who he is and considering Christianity, they don't even know how they ended up here this morning, God, Father, what every single person needs is that we might leave this time more impressed and more convinced, more confident in what Jesus Christ has done, all that he is and all that he promises to do. Holy Spirit, would you lift him high in this place? That you might draw all of us after him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? This is God's holy, flawless, hope-infused word. Luke chapter 13, verses 10 and following. Now he, speaking of Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and he said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which you ought in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour, until it was all leavened. Feel free to grab a seat. When uh, our family was in China adopting our youngest daughter, Lily, there was a man on the the busy streets of Guangzhou who likely had the same condition that the woman in this story had. And it made it very visible to me that the, the, the suffering, the pain, the difficulty, the struggle that would happen, and in, in, in most scholars, there's a condition—I forget the name of the condition—but a condition where basically you, you get bent over, not just a little bit, but really bent over, and your spine basically fuses into one solid piece, making it very difficult to walk, to, to even to stand, to even sit down. You remember the, this this man. Was, was so bent over, and I just thought about what his life was like, the, the difficulty of really spending almost your entire life either laying sideways on the ground or staring at the ground because you can't look up. So your life exists in the span of just a couple of feet all around you. And is As we watch people just continue to walk by him, just, just what it would be like, what his stories were like, what his, what his experiences were like, and the sort of fallout that you would have both physically, the, the kind of struggles that you would have financially and relationally and socially, and, 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 and it just made this story so real. As this woman is, is in the synagogue, which was like a, a functioning church, they're, they're gathered there to speak about the things of God, and Jesus is, is teaching And what I love about this text is Jesus, in the middle of his teaching, he sees her in need, and he stops what he's doing. He says, oh, woman, which was a term of endearment, I want to make you well. He says, be healed, and and he touches her. He embraces her. And I just think the beauty and the kindness, the, the wonderful works of God, the kindness of our Savior in that situation to jump in and to heal this woman. What we see in this text is a micro story of the macro theme of the Bible, which is that all the bent things will one day be made straight. All of the broken things will one day be healed. The Bible ends with this promise, behold, I am making all things new. The question I want to ask as we dive into this text is this. Was she the only one bent in the story? Was she the only one in need of healing? or need of help, I, I would say if you look at the religious leader's response and you see this picture not of compassion but of, but of hypocrisy and of uh, a lack of compassion that is given by this religious leader and he doesn't even re- adjust Jesus. He actually says to everyone else, he says, hey, come on, we all know it's the Sabbath and we don't work on the Sabbath and I love that Jesus, You know, when, when you're reading a text like this, I, I, I wanna try to tone the text. I don't know what Jesus' tone was but, but, I, but the, the word hypocrite is a strong word. I think he's, he's angry and jealous for the flourishing of this person made in the image of God. And he calls him out and I think what he's saying is, oh, you are so bent. You see so wrongly. The way you're acting is so inhuman. If we take it from this story, we expand it out to us in our own hearts or to us in our culture. I think we could say our culture is full of many beautiful things and many bent things. This last week, I... uh, Read about a 50-year-old woman who was arrested after she allegedly drove her car into a Popeye's, into like a chicken and biscuits, you know, fast food restaurant, because after she got her order, she opened the bag and they forgot the biscuits. Like, you don't know if to laugh, to like cry, like what do you, that is bent. Now, we don't know what's going on a lot. we don't know anything, we don't, but to, to threaten human life, to cause destruction over a missing biscuit. Our culture's bent. I think my kids' school, I think they've had five lockdowns this year. I, th- I don't even remember because it's just so common. We're just so used to it. That's really bent. We unequivocally know that pornography is highly addictive, damaging, and contributes greatly to sex trafficking, yet we keep consuming it. That's Ben. The band Foster the People have a very poppy, upbeat song called Pumped Up Kicks, and it tells the story of one kid who gets a gun and he uses the gun to go shoot other kids to take their tennis shoes. And the song is a reference back to Reebok pumps. I had like the first year of Reebok pumps. I still wish, I actually had the first year of Jordans too. I wish I had those. But back then, you know, the Reebok pumps, you got a little basketball and you inflate them. But there is a huge fear. Those might get taken by somebody. They might take your life so that they can have your shoes. I mean, that's, that's bent. We know social media is toxic. Amen? But we keep using it. We keep using it. Oh, there can be good things. Don't get me wrong. There can be good things. There can be beautiful things, helpful things, inspire things, funny things. There's funny things on there, but some really hard things. And ask another question Why were the people rejoicing? at the stuff that Jesus was doing. As you go to verse 17, because you have this kind of power play struggle between this woman that he's healing, religious leaders that are inhuman, and then you have people respond to Jesus' healing and then his rebuke of the religious leaders and they are rejoicing at the great things that he is doing. Obviously, I have lots of reasons, but I would say it's this, because Jesus did something that was new and needed. See, healings like this weren't common. What, what Christ did, it wasn't like it was just happening all the time. He did something that was, was new to them, but it was something needed. And here's what they knew. Just like this woman suffered, we're all suffering. Just like this woman was bent, we're all bent. We all experienced a world of, of beauty and brokenness simultaneously. I think it was Tim Keller who made this point in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, talks about the, the, the individual Job in the book of Job. And he says, Job is a story. If you don't know the story of Job, Job was a man who had a number of kids. He was very wealthy. Life was very good for him. He had his health. He had prosperity. He, he was married, had wonderful children, had lots of people working for him. In the span of one day, his kids were all killed. His property was all stolen. His health was snatched from him as he experienced great pain and sores on his body. And then the the day ends with his wife coming to him and saying, look, just curse God and die. And I remember Keller making this point. He says, and this is what unlocked that book for me. It says, "The, the story of Job, it's everyone's story. It's just what he lost in a day. It takes us a lifetime to lose infirmity comes, sickness comes. Thought, Oh, there's beauty, don't get me wrong, but there's always a, sh- there's always a veil, there's always a shadow. I still remember, it's 10 years ago when we got the call that my wife's dad, my, my wonderful father-in-law, John, diagnosed with Parkinson. And he, just for the last day, he'd walk, watching his body get eaten, what? I remember the way my grandma, my precious, uh, you've heard, if you've been there for any amount of time, you've heard me talk about my grandma. She was Twice the woman that Mary Poppins ever could hope to be, but real. This is amazing. I remember how she said goodbye to me when she was too sick to talk anymore, and she just pulled me close, and she kissed my forehead a thousand times. But death still took her. Our world is bent. That's bent. That's not how it was designed to be. That's not God's original plan. Struggle with singleness is real. It's hard to be single. Then you get married and you struggle to be married. Amen? Don't say it too loud. The person next to you is listening. That point made no sense. Parenting is wonderful and hard. Being a kid, honoring your parents is hard. Life is hard. Being a human is hard. Relationships get bent. They need healing. And we don't even know all the bent stuff. See, new stuff just keeps showing up. My wife had an endoscopy um, a week ago, uh, Friday. Uh, yeah, a week ago, Friday. And uh, she went in because she had some blood work done. And I have permission to share. She, she had some blood work done and some stuff came back suspicious. And so they said, we need to get a scope in there and see what's going on. And they assumed it was one thing and very manageable thing. And, uh, and so they finished the procedure and they bring her out where I'm waiting to, to take her home and... She was diagnosed with celiac disease. Like just all of a sudden, this thing that is now going to be really impactful that we didn't even know about. The world is just bent and it blindsides you. Mental health is a real battle for many people. Like one of the things I struggle with is this thing called intrusive thoughts. So these, these things that come in my head that are just crazy while I'm preaching, Right now. They're <laughs> like, what is it? I can't tell you, it's so weird. And they just roll around and roll around and roll around and roll around. Yeah, we're just bent. For those of you that are struggling with depression, you don't know why. You got no, maybe you don't even feel like you have a good reason for it. Body chemistry, our brains, our, our environments, like it, we're just, we're, we're bent, we're bent. And one of the things I love about our churches, our, our leading house rule is this, it's okay to not be okay. Part of that is because we live in a world that's bent. There's going to be times where you're just not okay. Bentness, it's everywhere. It's relational, it's physical, it's psychological, it's financial, it's spiritual. It's everywhere. No wonder that people rejoice when Jesus brought healing. And it's into that bentness. So as we go through this series on parables, I, I want to keep reminding us that Jesus tells these stories in life's circumstances. He tells this story in the midst of being in the synagogue, this woman needing healing, him healing the woman, the inhumanity of that religious culture that had been created. He says, I want to fix that. I want to address that. I want to straighten it out. And so he says, what we need is the kingdom. And then he tells us, and here's what he does, is he tells us how the kingdom comes, which to try to give us the right lenses what do we do with the bentness? How do we live with hope in the midst of a world that is full of beauty? And I want you to hear that. There are good things. Derek, one of the volunteers of the first service, he was carrying two boxes of donuts. Like, that, that's good. Praise God for donuts. But some of them were filled with custard. That's bent. Client Snodgrass, he summarizes, in my opinion, these parables really, really well. He says this, like the cross, the mustard seed parable is a challenge to human perception and judgments about smallness and significance. We see through a glass darkly and too often fail to recognize a seed planted by God. We should expect and implement, and he says, mustard seed thinking neither disparaging insignificance nor doubting what God can do and does do with small beginnings. See, this parable, it, 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 it brings significance to the small thing, the ordinary things, the simple thing. It says that one day they will give way to a world that is not bent. The trees that come and nest in the branches and the whole lump finally gets leavened to be right. The kingdom of God will heal all the hurts but the way it shows up, it's easy to miss. I'm just going to give you a number of stories. Um, bon Fox and Elmer Ben Diner, they were piloting a B-17 in the summer of, I believe, of 1947 in World War II. And they were doing an a, a air raid, and they came under a tremendous amount of enemy fire from the Nazis. And they were firing 20-millimeter shells at this plane that were loaded with explosives. And as they were doing this, this, this uh, raid, and they got hit, their engine actually, or their, um, their gas tank actually got hit by one of these 20-millimeter shells, and it, it didn't explode. The plane didn't blow up. See, these weren't just made to put a hole in the plane. They actually were supposed to hit and then explode. And when you hit the gas tank, it's supposed to blow up, but it didn't. It didn't. Miraculously, it didn't blow up. They end up being able to land the plane. And after they, they land the plane, and everyone's like, this is crazy. How did this happen? How are you still alive? Well, when one of them woke up the next day, when Fox woke up the next day, he, he went and he, he wanted to get the bullet. He was like, could I have the bullet? Could I keep the bullet or the shell of the bullet so I have a bit of a memento or a souvenir from this thing that just happened? And, and they respond to him. They said, no, there's not just one. There's 11. Their gas tank took 11 20-millimeter shells, and they still made it back. And so they took these shells and and none of them had exploded. None of them blew up. Not 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 a single one of the 11. So they take it back to the armory and they go about very carefully disarming them. But they open up the first one and it's empty. There's no explosives in it. The second one, it's empty. There's no explosives in it. They go through all 11, and there was only one shell that actually contained anything, and it wasn't explosives. It was actually this piece of paper that had been written on um, in Czechoslovakian and rolled and put into the shell, and here's what it said. This is all we can do for you. Some Czechoslovakian worker who was recruited by the Nazi party to make Weapons to destroy people. They defied that order. They they were subversive to that order. They said, we cannot end the war. We cannot make peace, but here's what we can do. Put no powder in the shell. This is all we can do for you. God does great things with small things. That's the parable. That's the story. That's how the kingdom of God comes. Not in these grand gestures and ways, but in some things that that we might even scoff at. He brings his kingdom. I was down north of San Diego a few weeks ago at a a cohort of other lead pastors, about 11 of us, and we get together twice a year to encourage each other, pray with each other, kind of peer coach each other. And I got in this great conversation with uh, one of the guys. I I was newer to the cohort, and I knew a number of them, but I didn't know this guy named Nathan from Elko, Nevada. It's in the the northeastern corner of Nevada. It's a town, I think, about 30,000 people now, so it's going, but it's surrounded by nothing. I think it's like five hours' drive to Salt Lake City, the nearest airport. And it exists because of a gold mine. So there's gold mining there. So everyone shows up and that's why this town exists. But he grew up there and he could not wait to escape there. And so when he turned 18, he was like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave Elko. I'm going to go to the biggest little city on earth. I'm going to move to Reno. If I grew up in Elko, I would not move to Reno. But for him, that was a huge, huge upgrade. And so he moves to Reno. And when he got to Reno, he found a church called Living Stones. And he went to this church, and in that church, Jesus came alive to him like never before. The glory of of God's grace, the the completeness of who Christ is, the goodness of the gospel, and it just melted his heart in some ways that Jesus just became stunning. He was working part-time in a, uh, selling glasses. He ended up getting laid off. The company was scaling back. He ends up getting laid off. He's sitting there with no employment. He couldn't find another job in Reno, so he had to move back to Elko goes back to Elko, he gets a job in the mines. But Jesus had imprinted something on him. And so what he did is he's, he's, he's like, I can't find a church that was talking like this, this, this church. And, and, and so he said, he just grabbed a couple of buddies, like three or four buddies. And he said, hey, could, maybe let's do this. could we just watch like the sermons, they record them. Maybe we could just watch the sermons together and we could just do like a Bible study. He said, okay. So they get together once a night and they start this little Bible study. And Within a few weeks, there's like seven or eight people. Within a few more weeks, there's like 25, 30 people. Within a few more weeks, there's like 40, 50 people gathered around a laptop watching poorly produced sermons. And Jesus is just stirring things. And, and it continued to grow and grow and grow. And it got over 100 people. And they had to find a new place. So they rented this like hangar by this little tiny airstrip. To, to, and it was like, well, we can't watch things on a laptop. And we don't have money to buy like a nice projector and project these things. And so what, what Nathan started doing is during his shifts in the mines, he would listen to the sermon and try to remember the sermon. And then he would get up and preach like a very subpar version of the sermon. And yet people kept coming. The most mediocre stuff you can imagine. Then one Sunday, or I don't think they were on Sundays at this point. I think it was still during the middle of the week. Someone came up and said, hey, my daughter just became a Christian. When's the next baptism? He's like, oh, we don't do baptisms. We're a Bible study. <laughs> then someone comes up and they have like a, a tithe check. And they said, okay, where's the offering? Oh, we don't receive. We're, we're Bible study. We're not a church. And then he goes, uh-oh. I think maybe we just started a church. I don't know what happened. And so he, he musters up the courage and he calls this church in Reno, this Church Living Stones, and he, and to apologize to them for what he's done. He's like, I didn't mean to. I didn't, it wasn't my fault. We were just trying to do a Bible study. But there's like 150 people here who think this is a church. What are we going to do? And they said, let's pray, let's pray and fast. I, don't, I can't remember if it was three days or seven days. Let's pray and fast for three days or seven days and then we'll, we'll talk and we'll see what the Lord is telling us. And they all did, and they said, no, it needs to be a church. And so now there's a thriving church in Elko, Nevada, because someone opened up the laptop and pressed play on a space bar. God does great things from small beginnings. Charles Spurgeon, he's probably talked about on Sundays around the world, uh, at least the Western world, the English-speaking world, probably more than any other preacher. He's called the Prince of Preachers, one of the most influential figures of the last few hundred years. Had a church in London that grew to 5,000 people I mean, it's just incredible at that time. It was shocking. Preached, I think, over 10,000 sermons, the number of books he's written and have been published, the organizations he started, starts orphanages and schools and, and seminaries and academies and food banks and all these. I mean, it's just absolutely incredible the sorts of things that God used him for. But how did he get there? He grew up in a pastor's house. He was a pastor's son. His granddad was a pastor. But between the ages of about 10 and 15, he really began to reject Christianity began to explore atheism and, and spent about five years kind of going down that pathway. And then at some point, he just goes, man, this is, this is not satisfying in the way Christianity is. It's not answering my big questions. And so he came back to the church. Um, but when he came back to the church, what weighed very heavily on his heart was, was what must I do to be saved? He, just, he was struggling with a lot of like religious rules, a lot of his own sin, a lot of like not living up to the standard. He was really wrestling with that. And then when he was 15 during Christmas break, he finally got his answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? He was in the middle of a snowstorm. It was, I think, January 6, 1850. And this snowstorm, it forced him not to go to his normal church, but to go to this church that he just happened to stumble upon. Here's the name of the church. Artillery Street Primitive Methodist Chapel. I think if Redeemer ever renames, that should be top of the list. Artillery Street, primitive Methodist chapel. He wanders into this church in the middle of a snowstorm. There's maybe a dozen people there. The the pastor, the preacher that was supposed to preach couldn't make it because of the snowstorm, and so they grabbed a deacon last minute, non-staff, unpaid deacon to fill in for him. This is how Spurgeon talks about it. He says, the deacon took the pulpit. He wasn't skilled. He barely got through the sermon. He stumbled over his words. But he was clear about the gospel. And the preacher he was preaching from Isaiah 45, and he looks at Spurgeon, and he is so in the middle of this room with 12 people. It'd be hard not to make eye contact with everybody. He says, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look. Look. You have nothing to do but look and live. Everybody knows Spurgeon's name. Well. Maybe he didn't, now you know it today, but he is well known in the Christian world. What's the name of the deacon that was the substitute preacher on that snowy day? Nobody knows. It's completely anonymous. No, nobody's figured out. And you, and you hear the words. He stumbled over his words. He barely got through it. He was super unskilled. He, it's saying he it was a really bad sermon. <laughs> And yet, God used it. God does great things with our wobbly stuff, our half baked contribution. If you're a Christian now, I don't assume everyone in the room, we're so glad in a church like this we have people that have been Christians a long time, people asking questions, people that are just coming back to the church, have been gone for decades or or years. I mean, wherever you're at, but if you're a Christian, how are you a Christian? Think about this, this thing that happened thousands and thousands of miles ago, thousands of years ago, so culturally different than where you are now. How is Jesus lodged in your heart? It began so small. Jesus was poor. He was penniless. He was born under scandal to a to a virgin teenage engaged mom. He lived in obscurity for 30 years, likely as a carpenter. He never held office. He never wrote a book. He wasn't the founder or leader of a reputable school or religious institution, during his lifetime at least. He didn't command a powerful army. He wasn't politically juiced in. And yet here we are worshiping him. If if that doesn't make the parable of the mustard seed land on you, I don't know what will. More songs have been written about him, sung to him, more books written about him, more books sold about him, the Bible being the chief of all. We adorn our buildings with the symbol of his death and our bodies as we wear necklaces or jewelry or our skin as we get tattooed. This poor, penniless, born in scandal, carpenter from a no-name town in the middle of a no-name place. We give our money freely, our time, our ability, our very lives because he's that worthy. But think about how it began. Oh, Jesus is the truest mustard seed you'll ever hear of. And just like this seed, see, Jesus was planted. He was planted in a a tomb. He went to a cross where he died. He was the ultimate tree that was made nothing and put into a tomb where he was planted. And three days later, he rose again to to bring in this new kingdom where all the bent things would be made straight and all the broken things mended and all the dead things might have life again. See, it's in his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection that all of the pieces needed to remake this world are found. Jesus on the cross taking the curse we deserve. Jesus taking the curse and the brokenness of this world that death, I love the line from John when death stung Christ it stung itself to death that anyone in Christ will never face death again. Though you may pass away here you will enter into a paradise that is glorious where all things are new where nothing is bent again. And just as he went into the tomb and as he came out it's like the the, the, the first growth of spring that the resurrection happens that the death can't hold it. That something new is happening. But it began so small, the death of a no-name person on a cross. Oh, God does glorious things with small things. If you're a Christian, you're a testimony to that. I'm gonna talk about the word hidden. I hung a lot on, on the mustard seed. Talk about the word hidden, this, this leaven that's Hidden. Um, to hide the leaven meant to to put it into the flour, to to, to mix it in, to, to expose it, to let it touch. See, the leaven has power to transform, but it has to enter in. The dough can't change itself. It has to be transformed by something outside of itself. It has to work inside of itself. We got this uh, picture, I think we'll put this up on the screen, from one of my buddies, Jim Woods. He's part of our church, probably can't see it that great, but he's... He was down in Guatemala. He was a doctor for a long time. He was in Guatemala. And he went down there on a a medical trip. And one of the people that they found was this lovely woman who is blind. She's blind because she has glaucoma. And Jim's text back was, 20-minute surgery, and she'll be able to see again. So I sent him a message. Hey, just to clarify, is she having the surgery? He says, yes, we've already raised the money. It's going to happen. And what's amazing about this, I think about this 11, see, it's got to get there. See, she stays blind unless somebody goes, unless somebody's there, unless somebody engages, unless somebody sees it, but somebody did see it. It's incredible the things that, that happen just by entering, and Jim now is on his way to, I can't remember if he's actually going to Ukraine or right next to Ukraine, he's doing, uh, he's basically helping doctors and nurses and medics learn how to do field dressing so less people die. He led a MASH unit in Vietnam. I mean, he he has so much experience in this area. And and it happens when the leaven gets in. It's got to go. I hope you hear the echoes of the gospel in this. See, this is the story of the incarnation, that God looked at a bent world, and instead of staying away from it, he went into it, God with us. That's what we celebrate around Christmas, the incarnation, that God became flesh in order that he might suffer in our place, that we might be healed. And all of creation might be healed. I mean, what could be a smaller gesture to change the world than a baby? I love this power to transform, to heal. It doesn't just happen at the individual level. If we were rightly gonna apply this text, no doubt it happens individually, but but this is talking about the kingdom coming and transforming not just people, but society as a whole. We actually see that. And this is, I think, extremely encouraging if we have eyes to, to see it. This past year, there's two books that competed my favorite books of the year. One of them was You're Only Human by Kelly Capick. I highly recommend reading it. It was a fantastic book celebrating our God-designed limits. You're Only Human. It was great. I loved the book. It was my favorite book. I was going to tell you all, that's the book. If you're going to pick one book, that's the book to read until I read another book. Now they're, they're on par. They're, they're even. And the book was by Glenn Scrivener, and it's called The Air We Breathe and in that book what shriver's doing is he's making the case he's trying to argue one point how did we in the west come to believe in things like compassion and equality and consent like how did that happen in his argument it is the product of christianity permeating the culture and bringing something outside of the culture into it to make it a kinder place among many things things like consent you know when christianity was birthed, things like consent were not celebrated. If you were of higher status, if you had more power, if you had more money, it was not just acceptable, it was expected for you to use your power to take whatever you wanted from those that did not have power. The idea of slavery was was not repugnant, it was just everyday commonplace. So how do we get to the place where these great evils are actually seen as great evils? Scrivener would say it was the presence of Christianity. It's like a little seed that goes in or it's like a little leaven that begins to change the culture around it. The first bullet point in the Bellingham Promise, which is this collective commitment to our kids. So in the public schools, they have this guiding document called the Bellingham Promise. And here's the first point. All children should be loved. Amen? That's not a very good response on that one. It kind of feels like, are we struggling to say yes? You don't know where I'm going. You're like, you're getting some preacher, you know, switcheroo on me. I'm not. All children should be loved. Do we agree? Amen. Amen. All children should be loved. And the fact that we all say it is testimony to the reality of the word of God getting a culture says every single person is made in his image is precious. Because that statement is not universally agreed upon historically. That all children should be loved, that all people matter that people should be protected. That's, that is not a common thing. And so I love this book because it actually brought the truth of this text like a little mustard seed or, or like a little leaven. I said, oh my goodness, it's, it's real. Tim Keller is doing a review of Tom Holland's book, Dominion, and the subtitle of that is How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Same argument, it's like 850 pages. Scrivener's book's like 150 and he's funny, so I'd read that one. But, but, but he's making the same argument and in this, this review, Keller says it like this, and he talks about Nietzsche. Nietzsche. Nietzsche saw it, you know, the atheist philosopher. Nietzsche saw the European intelligentsia rejecting Christianity and styling themselves as scientific free thinkers, supposedly living without God. But he argued they still believed in human rights, in the equal dignity of every person, in the value of the poor and weak and the necessity of caring and advocating for them all. They still believed that love is the great value and that we should forgive our opponents. They still believed in moral absolutes, that some things are good and some things are evil, and particularly, the oppression of the powerless was wrong. Hopefully, we love those things. Those are good and right things, but where'd they come from? Nietzsche, I think, saw it rightly. Nietzsche argued all these ideas were unique to Christianity. You go back and you look at Rome and you look at Greece and you look at the culture and you read the quotes of the teaching, they were not that. The word hidden, it works out individually, it works out in our culture. It's also encouraging another way. The flour, it had swallowed up the leaven. Once you mix it, you can't see it. But just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not working. Think again about those shells, those 20-millimeter shells, those casings. The, the Czech workers that did them, they, they didn't see the outcome. They didn't know if it saved anyone's life. They didn't know whose life they saved. They just did what they could and trusted that it would be effective. I would suggest to you that is so, that's so unbelievably true of almost everything we do. As you parent, as you pray, as you volunteer, as you serve, as you go to work and you just try to do a good day's job and care for the people around you and you... Say hi to the person, you know, that's checking out your groceries and you're kind to your neighbors and loving. Like, the, like it's, it's loving going everywhere, but you just don't see the impact until you do. My buddy Andrew Pack, he, uh, he became, he was a church planter. He, he now, um, he's a, a seminary professor, but he wasn't always a Christian. Actually, he wasn't a Christian until I believe it was his early 20s. And I remember him telling me the story of how he became a Christian. I think he was, as I remember the story, I think he was at Seattle University and he was doing like, like he was doing like philosophy classes and all sorts of, kind of just investigating like big worldview questions and all that stuff. And he remember one day in his apartment, he was looking up at a bookshelf. And on that bookshelf were a number of religious books. You had the Quran, you had the uh, Bhagavad Gita, and, and you also had this Bible. And it was a little tiny orange Bible, it was the New Testament. And he said that he began to read these books and he remembered reading the New Testament and Jesus just began to come alive to him. And I asked him, I said, well, where'd you get the Bible? And, and I think he's 22 at this time, 24, something like that. He says, well, when I was 12 in middle school here in Bellingham, and when I left, you know, Shucksen or Colshin or wherever he was at, across the street were some guys wearing a suit called the Gideons. These guys were standing there with stacks of Bibles saying, would anybody like one? And so as a 12-year-old, he receives this Bible, it goes in his backpack, and eventually ended up on a bookshelf and then eventually in his heart. See, you don't know the things that God is doing when you show up, the things God is doing when you, when, when you engage, when you enter in, this, that the kingdom that God brings, oh, God is doing great, great things, even through hidden things. There's this interesting contrast in this text. I'll try to go quickly through this, but I want you to see it. Between what happens with the woman and the Parables. The woman is immediately healed. The bent things are immediately straight. But the parable has a gap. It's got, it's got a time gap. The seed's planted, but it takes time for it to become a tree. The leaven's pitched, but it takes time for it to, to fully leaven the loaf um, or the dough. And in this pairing, what we're seeing is something really good happening, but something not yet happening. What we see is what theologians would call the already, but the not yet. Or realized eschatology, the kingdom of God is here but it's not here like it's going to be here. If something good has already come, but it's not as good as it's going to get. My wife, she loves, um, she loves the show Moonshiners. And so it's a, it's a show about middle-aged men wearing overalls that make moonshine in the Appalachian woods. So I, obviously she loves it. And so... Yeah, my favorite part about it is there's these two guys, they gotta be in their mid-50s and they, they call each other baby man. I just I just think it's cute. And so the way the way it works when you when you're gonna make moonshine is you you know you gotta find your still site. You gotta you know, make sure it's it's protected. No one's gonna see, because I guess supposedly it's illegal, but they can make a show about it and put it on TV. I don't understand. But but so so you gotta find the still site, and you, you gotta have some a water source, and then you got your mash bill, you know. Whether let's say it's just you're using white corn, you're doing a simple kind of kind of distilling, and so you got that, and you got your sugar, and, and you mix all this stuff together, and you got these tubs, and you bring it to boil, and you've made your copper still and you're ready to go. But after you get the mash, exactly where it's supposed to be, and then it gets to cool to the right temperature, you do something. You take yeast and you pitch the yeast in. And the yeast goes in there and it gets absorbed. But then you know what you do? Wait. You wait. There's work that's been done, but it hasn't come to completion. You just wait. Eventually, eventually they're able to then take it and distill it and make moonshine, which I'm sure is legal, even though it says it's illegal, but they have a show about it. So um, it might be easiest. And and I see in this, this kind of already, but not yet. See, we're leaving. There's a word in this parable that says until. Until it's all 11. We're in the until still. You know, we're going to sing a song. Do you feel the world is broken? Yeah, we do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from coming through? Yeah, we do. We're living in the until. There's beautiful things, but there's still busted things. And one day, it will all be made new. That's true at the individual level, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. The Bible uses, I love this line in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Dear Christian in the room, do you feel like that? like a new creation, sometimes, sort of. Yeah, that, you're living in the already, but not yet. God has already saved you, already claimed you, already justified he's changing he's giving you a new heart, new affections, and yet what you will be has not yet been revealed. We see it at that level. We see it at the, 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 the cosmic level. There's some things that just won't be healed yet. There's some wars that just won't stop yet. There's some diseases that just won't be cured yet. There's some divisions that just won't be reconciled yet. There's some bentness that just won't be straightened yet. I love Alyssa Pobletti, this this line. I've used it many times. It's still one of my favorite because I love the honesty of it and the defiance of it. The world is not sin free. The world is not void of sorrow. Not yet. See, when you live in the until with the hope of the, the unbent world, the behold, I'm making all things new, you live with that hope. You're able to engage with it well. You're able to not get to see, You're able to not get good because the kingdom of God, it's coming. It's coming. It's been planted. It's growing. And one day it will be fully here. God will do even greater things than we can imagine. I'm going to end with this. The passage begins with one healing. It ends with the promise that everything one day will be healed until it was all leavened. I'm old enough to remember mixtapes. I don't know who else in this room made mixtapes. Oh, the younger generation doesn't know the sorrows that we had to go through. So the mixtape was a tape, a cassette tape, right? And you took that tape and you got your boombox gigantor thing, right? They're so cool. I love the big boom box. And you get the boom box, and you get the tape, and you're 15 years old, and you're making a mixtape for your new girlfriend. And so you put, you name it like, I love you, mixtape, summer 83, right? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and you put it in the tape deck, and you, you tune the radio to the right station, and you wait, and wait, <laughs> yeah, and wait. And then that song, it's gonna come on, and you press record, and you capture it this beautiful song, and then you wait. And you wait, and you keep waiting, and then you get the next song, and it might take you weeks to get the perfect, it might take you months to get the perfect mixtape, but once you have that in your hand, you bring it to your 15-year-old girlfriend whose hair's like this, and you say, here. (laughs) Oh, you know what I'm talking about. Bangs for days. Um, (laughs) you're You're going on a road trip, Oh, you make the best mixtape, summer 83 road trip, woo! The new creation is a mixtape of all the best things this world offers. And it's going to take time to get there, but we'll get there. Everything beautiful, everything lovely, everything right, everything rejoicing. But here's what, there'll be none of the bad songs. There'll be none of the advertisements. Be none of it. All it will be is something right and good. All things new one day, because of what Christ began. It's like a mustard seed. Might look small. You might even look around this world and think sometimes the bentness is winning. But it won't. The kingdom's coming because the king has promised. Let's pray. Father, give us the eyes to see this text, the, the, the endurance to believe it, to believe it when we're sidelined, to believe it when we're derailed, and to, to rejoice in you as this text says, they greatly rejoice in the things that Jesus was doing as we see your kingdom show up. Help us not miss the rejoicing and let us tether it back to this text to know that whatever good things we see, oh, you are just getting started. May the kingdom of God come upon hearts in this room right now. Holy Spirit, might you change them from death to life that death might not ever have that they would just do what they would just look to the Lord and live. Father might the kingdom of God come on sicknesses in this room right now. Just like you heal this one, we know you can heal, you can make straight. And Father, if you choose not to heal right now, God, would you point that person, that family, those people, God, to the hope of a new creation where sickness and death will be no more. You might give them endurance and hope right now. God, might your kingdom come on those in this room that are struggling just with their mental health, that Christ would come and drive away the gloom and the sorrow, And if that doesn't happen, that they would at least know that you are with them and sitting with them and that one day a new creation is coming when all the sorrow will cease. God, might your kingdom come right now in the war in Ukraine? God, might might your kingdom come now on our nation and heal us in all the fraction and all the division, whether it's political or ideological or whatever? God, might your kingdom come right now on our bodies? We can feel so out of place even in our own bodies whether we're ashamed or disjointed or confused. God, might your kingdom come right now in loneliness. Might you show us the great friend we have in Christ and and release your people to be friends here and now as we look forward to the day where no one will be lonely again. Oh, just might your kingdom come. Might it come on earth as it is in heaven and give us the eyes to see and the confidence to know like a little seed that one day will grow and like a little leaven that's enough for the whole lump. You do great things. Would you do greater things still? In Jesus' name, amen.